حد كل حد كل حد مسلم سيستم نويز بدك تشوفني منيح لوك ان ماي ايز بالاجنب بمشيش مع جانب كلهم ماي صوت مفزلكات بطلت اصلا اكلك في بنات بط بط بطلت اطلع من الدار كتير بمشي بناتكم ما بنيتش بيت لا بس بنيت بلادنا بس ما عادش بتحكوا ارسلكم ضيق في قصه بوفا مش سامع في حرب في حرب في حرب في حرب في المنطقه صواريخ غزت تزل انطرطقه بنجيب كل حدا كان فيكم مرتاح بندردكه وهي كل القصه على بعضها طلعت تنحل بدقيقه خيال لو بعرف فيك من زمان كان بزمان كان شطفت لها قد ما بتكبر قد ما بتكبر بصل اللي بيعرف بشتغل 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 خيل للسبت للسبت بنهد جبال بنعد بنعد المال محسوبك اصبح بزنس مان عبي الاستبيان بس وضح خالي ده مش من هان ووقع هان بس فوق الخط وده مش بالخطب بالابهام بسم الله بنلم الرجال بنشد الهم بننجز لا بننغل بشلال الاستسلام خلال بتعد سلام صار بتعد صغار تشتغل تبدا تعد صفار نشتغل ليل لا تنوم افضل استثمار كل حدا كل حدا كل حدا كل حدا مسلم سيستم نويز بدك تشوفني منيح لوك ان ماي ايز بالاجنبي بمشيش مع جانب كلهم ماي صوت مفزلكات بطلت اصلا اكلك في بنات عيش عيش التجربه مره او مرتين دير السودان في معركه معركه كل شي بقوله ثلاث مرات او مرتين دير السودان في معركة معركة بطل بطل تطلع من الدار كتير بتوتر بتأثر ايش بتحكي الناس والناس تتغير بطلنا نطبطب بطلنا نطيب صرنا بنتدردم بس بنشتغل منيح بنشتغل زي ما كانت بعد كل شي حكيته لسه بمشي بناتكم ما بنيتش بيت لا بس بنيت بلادنا بس ما عادش بتحكوا ارسلكم ضيق في قصة بوفا مش سامع في حرب في حرب في حرب في حرب في المنطقة صواريخ غزت تزل انطرطقة بنجيب كل حدا كان فيكم مرتاح بندردكة وهي كل القصة على بعضها طلعت تنحل بدقيقة خيال لو بعرف فيك من زمان كان بزمان كان شطفت لها Here we have a community of indigenous inhabitants living on the land for centuries. And you have a group of settlers coming from Europe, never been to the land, never seen the country, claiming to be connected to the Israelite 2,000 years ago, and coming with a superior claim. They think they can establish a Jewish state in a country which is inhabited by a majority of Palestinians. They looked at the indigenous inhabitants of the land as a kind of natives in a colonial way of view, European way of looking at the Palestinians. You can clear them, you can move them out. Zionism can only be understood within the age of empire and within the age of colonization, where you have European empires going out to Asia and colonizing the country. So you can only understand the idea of transfer within that kind of European uh, colonial racist, supremacist, they have supreme uh, values and supreme uh, civilizations, and uh, Arabs can be shifted.
I lived most of my life in Galilee and Jerusalem, I never came across uh, documents on transfer. The issue was suppressed. It was really suppressed within Israeli society. There was a conspiracy of complete silence around it. I went straight in two archives in Jerusalem. One is the central Zionist archives, and one is the state archives. I went into the, uh, this archives, and I was quite shocked to discover mountains of documents, minutes, meetings, committees, uh, uh, mainly about the 30s, but even before the 30s. Uh, gradually, I started to create a picture of what the idea of transferring Zionism was. And I came to the conclusion, really, it was, it was from the beginning of the Zionist project. Already in the late 19th century, the Zionist leaders, the top leaders, Herzl talks about transfer. But he talks about it in a kind of vision, in a kind of dream, in a kind of gradually you have Jewish settlements increasing in Palestine, gradually the Palestinians will be pushed out. They see people there as a problem, well they had to talk about it. You can't, uh, uh, you can't talk about transfer unless there is someone to transfer. But they don't, they don't see people with the same rights, the same values, uh, the same connection to the land. Of course, they saw the country inhabited, but they don't see uh, the people are integral part of that country, have rights to it, have future in it. The Zionists didn't accept the idea that Palestinians are a people, a nation. <laughs>
الجنن باحترام الشعب شعب باحترام الكل زلنا نحد حسام الضرب حسام الضرب نحد الزل ولما بالميدان شنو ما بنهاد الطيعان هي انصب من البرات كاتل كاتل من البرات انصب I mean, I could say this almost without, without qualification, right from the moment I arrived in the West in, in the early 50s until the present. Initially, there's always a sense in which as an Arab and obviously as a Palestinian, you feel in some way criminalized or delinquent. So powerful is the definition of you as somebody who's outside the pale, I mean, whose sole sort of purpose in life is to kill Jews. It's been very important to try to understand, for me, uh, the uh, tremendous appeal of, of Zionism to, to the European mind. And I would say that there are really two very powerful and, and, um, and compelling reasons for that appeal. One of them is, the first reason, is that um, Zionism is a, uh, appears to be a movement um, and an ideology that sort of gathered together uh, the remnants and the, um, the, the, the kind of remains of a, of a shattered uh, community of people who had historically been oppressed and, and abused and discriminated and persecuted in the West and gathered them together into a, a, a very powerful uh, movement uh, which created a new country. Uh, it had all the elements of a kind of phoenix, you know, rising from the ashes. Um, and it also had the appeal of, uh, of the creation of a new state, which is, I, I think, very central to the, to the European consciousness. Um, because, you know, a lot like, for example, the American uh, experiment of Europe, that is to say, sending out people to America to create a new country, and obviously it explains the peculiarly close connection between America and Israel. There's this uh, tremendously attractive idea of starting out afresh, of starting with a clean slate, of building a, a new country, making the desert bloom. I mean, it has all the elements also of, of miracle. Uh, and that's very, very appealing. The great problem that we face as a people is that we're being told by the Israelis that in a certain sense we don't really exist, that the continuity of our existence in Palestine, that our history, our identity, is sort of manageable by Israeli historians, by propagandists, by politicians, is manageable as something else. The Arabs of Judea and Samaria, Begin used to call us, uh, two-legged beasts, terrorists, everything but not Palestinians. We were there. I mean, you, you can't do more than that. But it, it, it's so indecent and humiliating an exercise to have to say that we do exist in, that is to say, there were villages, Palestinian villages, there were Palestinian cities, there were Palestinian, there was a Palestinian society, there were Palestinian people before 1948 who were Arab and who formed a society underdeveloped, whatever you want to call it, but it was there, which abruptly and dramatically in the mid, middle part of 1948 was shattered, dismantled, destroyed by the Zionists. كانوا ثلاثة رجال سابقوا على الموت 
اقدامهم عليت فوق ركبه الجلاد وصاروا مثل يا خال وصاروا مثل يا خال طولوا عرض البلاد
طابت عليها كل البلاد نادي فؤاد مهدي فؤاد قابل نتفرد Agency. 
That's not Social my church. association, JCA. It's not my description. That's their description. You read Herzl. You read Ben-Gurion. You read Jabotinsky, the founder of the strain of Zionism that develops into liquid. They talk about this without, with no, in private at least, they talk about this with no qualms. We are a colonial settler movement. There is an indigenous population we have to move. That's what we have to do. Like, uh, like others have done, we are going to... Now remember, they are talking in the era of high colonialism. They are talking in an era where colonialism, colonization, settler colonialism are not in a bad odor, where they're fully accepted, where Britain and France are settler colonial powers, and Britain is protecting the Zionist movement. There's no shame in it. So in this, in this aspect, I have, I, have, I have no problems with this. Uh, and you can take it up to the present. I mean, look at what happens in the West Bank day in, day out. What is it but settler colonialism? Look at what happened to the, to the, to the, to the land taken over uh, by the state of Israel from 1948 until 1967. Look what happened to the Arab population. Look what happened to their rights. Look what happened to their property. Look what happened to the, to the Jewish population. Look at how the two peoples were treated, the two groups were treated. This is settler colonialism. There's no other possible way of describing it. It is a unique form of settler colonialism I'm prepared to accept. That it has manifold differences from South Africa, from Algeria, from Canada, from Australia, I'm prepared to accept. That it also has other characteristics, I am prepared to accept. For example, it is not an extension of the metropole, which every other settler colonial movement is. The Dutch settlers in South Africa were originally extensions of the Dutch of the Netherlands. British settlers in North America were extension of the crown, extensions of the crown. The French in, North, in Algeria were French persons, French people, extensions of the metropole. Zionism wasn't like that. It was completely different in multiple respects. I go into that. I don't need to go into that further. Now, where's the hard part? The hard part is the national aspect. The hard part is that settler, successful settler colonial projects eventually turn into a nation state. Who, we just heard a, a, a moving uh, uh, acceptance of the fact that we stand on somebody else's land here in Providence, okay? So who would deny the settler colonial nature of this country? Nobody in their right mind. But who would deny that it is a nation state, that a national, a national entity has been created, or that the same has happened in Canada, or that the same has happened in Australia, or that the same has happened in New Zealand? Nobody in their right mind, even while accepting the settler colonial origins of every one of those four states. What I'm suggesting by talking about the nation, national aspect of Zionism is that a national entity has been created. Now, when it becomes national, and that's a hard question, and I, 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 I'm not sure about that. In, in one respect, the United States and Israel are similar in that both separate themselves from the metropole in different ways and for different reasons and behave very similar there, similarly thereafter. So quite differently from the French in Algeria, quite differently from the British uh, settlers in Canada, Americans and Israelis at, at a certain stage develop a national project. Now what stage that is and when that happens, I, I'm not prepared to say. That would require much deeper thinking than I've been able to do on this. But I think you put your finger on something that is not entirely clear. Does it have a national aspect? Yes. When does that national aspect take over uh, or become you know, important? I'm not as sure.
I'm not 
organized and backed by the Zionist state against Palestinians all over occupied Palestine, reminders are not unnecessary. We are not seeing a civil war inside Israel, writes Lana Tatur, but rather the Israeli settler state declaring war on its colonized citizens and Palestinians fighting for their liberation. Settler colonial geography is intentionally confusing. Let's set the record straight once again. Palestine is there, where it always has been. It seems obvious, but imperial geography is deliberately confusing. Much violence is used to bend geography, and also people's perception of it. First, a demographic war was waged aiming to manufacture a new body politic. Palestinians were expelled and denied return. And millions of Jewish babies born in Palestine turned Israel 
were assigned an imperial identity that proclaimed that Palestine does not exist. Identity that operates as a light weapon, as it reflects the new colonial geography. These babies grew up to believe that they were Israelis. This identity was assigned to them as part of a broader transformation of Israel from a contested fact into a fait accompli.
does seem that the war, the civil war, has been quite fruitless. It's not a civil war. It's a people defending themselves against a fascist government, which you are defending because just King Hussein has an Arab passport. It's not a civil war. Well, the conflict... It's not a conflict. It's a liberation movement fighting for justice. Well, whatever it might be best called... It's not whatever, because this is where the problems start. Because this is what makes you answer all your questions, ask you all your questions. This is exactly where the problems start. This is a people who is discriminated, is fighting for his rights. This is a story. If you will say it's a civil war, then your questions will be justified. If you will say it's a conflict, then of course it's a surprise to know what's happening. Why won't your organization engage in peace talks with the Israelis? You don't mean exactly peace talks, you mean capitulation, surrendering. Why not just talk? Talk to whom? Talk to the Israeli leaders. That's kind of conversation between the sword and the neck, you mean? Well, if there are no swords and no guns in the room, you could still talk. No, I haven't been, I had never seen any talk between a colonialist case and a national liberation movement. But despite this, why not talk? Talk about what? Talk about the possibility of not fighting. Not fighting for what? Not fighting at all, no matter what for. Yeah, and people usually fight for something and they stop fighting for something. So you can't tell me even why should we speak about what? Well, stop fighting. Fight for what or, or talk about stop fighting why? Talk to stop fighting to stop the death and the misery, the destruction, the pain. The misery and the destruction and the pain and the death of whom? Of Palestinians, of Israelis, of Arabs. Of the Palestinian people who are uprooted, thrown in the camps, living in starvation, killed for 20 years and uh, forbidden to use even the name Palestinians. They're better that way than dead though. Maybe to you, but to us it's not. To us, to liberate our country, to have dignity, to have respect, to have our mere human rights is something as essential as life itself.
صمت العشية قمري هاجر في 
Thank you. 
let's say, Ohio, which is, I've never been there, but I mean, you can imagine what it's like, okay? <laughs> uh, and we'll know everything that's going on, I mean, during the days of Beirut, we'll know everything that's going on about the difference between the, the latest uh, disagreement between the Popular Front and, the, and Fatah and so on, and we'll not even know the name of the mayor of, of, of Youngstown or how he's elected, if he's elected. I mean, you know, they will assume that he, he was put there by somebody. So there's that peculiar kind of uh, existence. Uh, and then all Palestinians move a lot. You get that impression. That there's a lot of uh, carrying, like in those pictures of Jean, carrying bags and moving mm -hmm. from one place to the other. Mm -hmm. I mean, very, in that respect, I think we, we are a people. Mm -hmm. We are a people. And we say it loudly enough and uh, repetitiously enough and stridently enough. Yes. And above all, they haven't been able to get rid of us. I mean, that is the great feeling that I would say the positive or pass optimistic feeling yeah. is that you wake up in the morning and you say, well, they didn't, they didn't, you know, they didn't bump me off, yes. you know. One thing you say about, about repetition, about the problem of being Palestinian, is the need endlessly to retell the story from the beginning. And you, you talk about an article in a fashion magazine under the headline Terrorist Couture, um, which, which, is a, which, has a, which is a kind of photo article about what about sort of Palestinian dresses, um, this, this headline. Um, which, which makes a number of claims. First of all, claims that they're not really Palestinian, that they're Arab dresses which the Palestinians have somehow hijacked. Right. I may use that verb. Right. <laughs> um, Go right ahead. Um, we do it all um, the time. And <laughs> um, 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 also that they're essentially rich people's dresses, right. that they're not dresses of the people, they're, they're haute bourgeois yes, dresses. Yes, upper, upper middle class, uh, she yes. said, yes. Um, sorry, she's an American. Mm. Um, she doesn't know French. She doesn't know French. <laughs> Uh, she's called Sharon Churcher, and right. as you say in the book, you know, in the larger scheme of things, who is Sharon Churcher? She's somebody, you know, running, doing a hack job on a hack fashion magazine. And yet, Edward says he feels the need to go right back to the beginning and to say these are Palestinian dresses, they do come, they are not um, upper middle class dresses, um, and to explain the whole history of Palestine in order to unmake the lie of Sharon Churcher. And that problem of repetition, that you have to go back and tell the story from the beginning every time because so many lies have intervened. Mm. Um, does that get tiring? I mean, it does. Do you, oh, it's, do you, it's, it's, uh, um, you find yourself having to do it every single time, you know, and, uh, but, but you, you, you do it anyway. I mean, mm. you know, it's like the, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's like the ma the, trying to find the magical moment where everything starts, you know, as at midnight's children, you know, mm. midnight, so you go back. But mm. it's very hard to do that because you have to work out everything, uh, you know, and, and, and get past a lot of information that's there in the mm -hmm. daily press. You know, why, why, do Palestinians, why, do pa why don't Palestinians just stay where they are? Why are they such troublemakers? You know, that immediately launches yeah. you into a tremendous sort of harangue about, you know, really our history was this, and we were there. And I tell people, you know, my mother was born in Nazareth, my father was born in Jerusalem, and it's, I, I'm bored by the whole story. Yes. But you feel you have to do it. And the, the interesting thing is, the, I mean, is that there, is, there seems to be nothing sort of in the world that sustains the story, that keeps it there. In other words, unless you're telling it, it's just going to drop and, and disappear. Sort of, you so know, like Shahrazad in a funny So it needs to be perpetually told perpetually in told order to exist. Yeah, exactly, mm. in order to be, mm. wh whereas you feel that the other narratives mm. are there and they're kind of permanent and they're, you know, sort of, uh, they're, they're sort of, uh, they have a kind of ex institutional existence mm. and you have to just try and work away at them. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask, I suppose we ought to touch on the subject of, of Zionism and the problem of combating it. And you talk, you, you, you say for one thing, you, you, what's interesting about your book is, is how fair you are. Um, because you talk 
about how having lived inside Western culture for a long time, you say you understand as well as any non-Jew can hope to do, what is the power of Zionism for, for the Jewish people. Um, and also in many ways, you, you, you describe it as being a program more efficient, more in detailed terms, competent than anything the Palestinians have been able to put up against it. Mm. Um, that it's been this, uh, what's the phrase, a goat and, an, and an, another, another acre. acre, another another acre. Mm. That it was a process of, of slow and steady acquisition, which was, which was very planned, very efficient, and very competent. Mm. And you give it credit for that. Um, the problem is that any attempt to provide a, a, a critique of Zionism is almost always faced with, these days particularly, with the charge that it's anti-Semitism in disguise. Mm. That the, the line that you are not anti-Semitic but anti-Zionist is always or often greeted with the response, oh yes, yeah, well, as, 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 as though to say, we know that code, mm. you know? Mm. Um, whereas I think in the question of Palestine, your earlier book, and again in this one, you, you do provide the basis for a very useful and kind of emotionally neutral um, critique of Zionism, which is, in, which is as a historical phenomenon, where it came from and what it's for. Um, and I think it might be worth just for a few minutes talking about that. Well, I, I, I feel that the, the question of Zionism is perhaps the touchstone, really, for uh, kind of political judgment. That is to say, a lot of people who are very happy to talk about apartheid and attack it and talk about American intervention in Central America and attack that and so on. I mean, there are a whole set of things of that sort are unwilling to touch on the question of Palestine and the matter of Zionism and what Zionism did to the Palestinians. I think principally because, you know, uh, it's very hard, and I can understand it perfectly, I think, or almost perfectly, uh, to be the victim of a victim. I mean, that is to say, if you're trying to deal with a classic victim of all time, the, the Jew and his or her movement, mm. then to, be, to present yourself as the victim of that is really, is, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's comedy worthy of, 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 of your writing. I mean, it's an, an untenable position. There's that problem. But there's now something new, and that is that I think, uh, you know, there's a whole spate of, of, of books and articles coming out now in which anti-Semitism is really made the umbrella for any form of criticism of Israel. It's particularly true in the United States. But that is the, 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 that, is the, that is the going concern now. Mm. And as a result, if you say almost anything, you are now shown to be really, for the first time in history, as an Arab and from a Muslim culture, joining classical European or Western anti-Semitism. I mean, this is the, the, the great move. So the, the relationship between, uh, between Zionism and critiques of Zionism is now almost like a, like a chess game. I mean, if you want to talk about it, you've got to be able to talk about it in a way without touching on these other things and dragging in these extraneous things and say, look, this is specifically from the point of view of the Palestinian what Zionism has done. And it has a context, it has a history, and it, it, is, it is particular and concrete in this way. But that's very hard for people to attend to, given, as I said earlier, the absence of a narrative, given the absence of a kind of, uh, of a presence there that, that has the force that, that, you, that you would like. But I think one has to just one has to do it anyway. I mean, one has to be able to do it and to and to and to uh, and to tell the truth, which is which is not so easy. You said that there's a kind of basic, um, so to speak, sleight of hand that Zionism works, yes. which is the idea that it is somehow outside history and objective, mm. and that it that it is not, it's not a phenomenon that exists in a context, but it is somehow absolute. Absolutely. Uh, um, that 
and that the problem is to make people see it as being like anything else in history. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's to say, arising from sources and going somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that, that, that Zionism has changed in its nature in, in recent years? I mean, apart from the fact that it's become harder to criticize it, you say. Has there actually been any alteration in the nature of the... Well, I'm speaking, of course, about America. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes. it may, well, it may be different right. here. One is the, I have the impression, you know, that, this mm -hmm. is, that it's, it's, like, it's easier, I mean, to, mm -hmm. to talk about uh, Palestine and Zionism in, in this context, say, than mm -hmm. it is in the United States. Mm -hmm. But, but I, I think, yes, I mean, there are changes. I mean, I, I talk about this in the, in the book because, I mean, one of the things I'm really interested in is, is the extent to which people are not bound by and not sort of frozen in attitudes of, 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 of perpetual uh, sort of difference and hostility to each other. I mean, there are a lot of Jews that, one ha that I've encountered over the last 10 years, for example, who are very interested in, in some kind of exchange. And the whole notion of crossing over, of, of moving from one sort of identity to the other yeah. is, is terribly important to me. Yeah. I mean, being as I am, as we all are, sort yeah. of hybrid people in any way, yeah. in any event. So that kind of thing is, uh, is an important change within it. And I think, you know, the events of the last four or five years has created a, 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 a rather large community mm. of, uh, of, of Jews who are not as comfortable with the idea of the absolutes of Zionism, I think. Right. And that's terribly important. So there's your question, I think, sir. Do you, say, do you see any concrete basis for any, any sort of formula for some sort of solidarity between what I see as, as the Jewish victims of Zionism as well as the Arab victims of Zionism in the sense that it's well known that there's a lot of racism within Israel against uh, Jews themselves depending on their racial origins and also I see uh, being like a lot of other countries having social classes there, there are people there are Jews who are exploited by other Jews you see that sort of thing as being a basis some so, sort of solidarity and also there's I have another sort of different separate yeah. question about I've heard the idea of self-determination for Palestinians which seems I can't understand that too well in the sense that it's there are people that are so badly dispersed at this point if you have a situation like for example Ireland where we you have a place where most a lot of Irish people still are I can see it in that sort of context but what does that mean in a place like Palestine or Israel, where they're scattered on a wide basis like that. Well, I, look, I tell you, I, I, I really can't. I, I really don't want to answer the first question in a sense because it's exactly the kind of thing I have sort of given up. I don't want to speak in terms of formulas of that sort, which I distrust. In other words, the the oppressed should unite, and there are. Con I mean, I don't know the experience of the so-called Oriental Jew, for example, inside Israel at first hand, and. I think there must be ways in which there are connections between them and Palestinians, but I, I, you know, it's, it's something that is very removed from my experience, and I don't want to talk about it theoretically or generally as a political analyst or as a kind of uh, ideologue, because that's not really what I think I'm doing. So I'll, I'll use the occasion, therefore, not to answer that question, because I, I really don't know any more than probably you do, probably less even. Uh, as for the other business, I, th I think you know, most Palestinians speak in terms not so much, I mean, self-determination is, a, of course, a, an English expression. I mean, it's, it's in, in, in English. Uh, and it, it never really has sat very well upon the tongue of an Arabic speaker. I mean, it's Arabic equivalent. It's not really part of our vocabulary. Most Palestinians speak of awda, which means return of some sort. But, but I prefer to use it as a kind of metaphorical concept. But, I mean, you can choose the form of your return. Some people actually presumably want to go back. Some never want to go back. People want to be given the right, however, to, 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 to express 
their form of attachment to Palestine in whatever way, as a community, uh, they feel entitled to. And that's precisely what's been denied us. And, and if I might just say one, one last thing on a kind of political level, which is fascinating, because I mean, this is not an observation of mine, but it's quite unique, I think, in the history of colonial peoples, such as the Palestinians, I mean, in, in the third world, that the one strand that runs through our history is not only the denial of all of this, but the somehow the refusal to grant us the right to represent ourselves, which is very, it's a very interesting, persisting strand. That who, you know, when they first came in 1926 to this country, the leaders of the Palestinian community, one of the first things that the colonial secretary, Churchill at the time, told them is, who, who do you represent? I mean, we don't think of you as representative. There's always this question of representation and who represents the Palestinians and do they have the right to represent themselves? I mean, that's been, and I think that's, you know, a terribly important kind of symbolic thing in, in all of this. And I think Auda is, is, is one formula for expressing the right to represent yourself.
And, and, and I believe it's important to spend most of our time when we're talking with each other outside of the necessity, okay, of addressing um, silly shit or feeling the necessity of uh, being involved in, 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 in some impossible discursive imperative. Like for instance, proving your humanity. You can't prove your humanity. So the best thing to do is to stay away from people to whom you must prove it. Okay, 
don't talk to them. Whatever you say to them should be a lie. Okay. As, as far as I'm concerned, you know, I mean, I'm not, there's no, there's no utopian space in which we never have to deal with them or their effects. But what we don't have to do is argue with them on their own ground. And it turns out anyway, that it, at least 99% of the evil shit they do to you is not because they don't think you're human. It's because of, they know that you are right. Right. Okay. Right. They know how much is going to hurt. They know how much is going to damage you. Okay. They know how they know the pain is going to make you feel. Then reason they know it is because they sort of know how they would feel if somebody did that shit to them. Right. Mm -hmm. They know that it's going to fuck you up what they're getting ready to do to you in a way that it wouldn't fuck up a dog or that it wouldn't really fuck up a fish. Right. So they, their brutality is generally not a function of their, you know, of, of their belief in your inhumanity. It's a function of their absolute certainty of your humanity. Okay. The Israeli de defense minister was clear in, you know, it, it can be complex you know right well we're gonna not no water no electricity no fuel we're fighting human at what human animals is what he said right right okay but he he didn't say inhuman animals either. so so if, if the motherfuckers want to say i ain't human fuck you fuck, you know i mean you know <laughs> uh, no no
I think what we are seeing now, what unfolds in front of our eyes, uh, is a genocidal situation uh, by which people are targeted, uh, whether they are children, babies, uh, in hospital or in schools. And uh, this is a massive operation of killing, of ethnic cleansing, uh, of depopulation. The pretext for that kind of savagery is revenge for what the Hamas did on the 7th of October. But I think the real intention here is not just revenge, but trying to exploit what happened on the 7th of October to create new realities uh, in historical uh, Palestine. You called it uh, a new Nakba. I think that this is the Nakba has never really ended for the Palestinians. So it's a new horrific chapter in the ongoing Nakba uh, that the Palestinians are suffering uh, uh, here. Thank you. 
regardless of whatever was written in these books that were written thousands and thousands of years ago, the fact of the matter is no one has a right to go on slaughtering people, removing them from their homes, and then continuing to live in their homes, continuing to drink coffee on their balconies um, decades and decades later with no shame, with no introspection, uh, with no reflection. That's No one has the right to do that. No one has the right to keep an entire population of people in a cage, uh, which is what's happening to people in the West Bank who have no freedom of, uh, of movement, which is what's happening in Gaza, which is blockaded to water, air, and land, and is deemed uninhabitable by human rights organizations like the UN. Um, no one has a right to do that. In Rivka, you wrote, my father told me, anger is a luxury we cannot afford. Be composed, calm, still, laugh when they ask you, smile when they talk, answer them, educate them. So let me linger on this. Is there anger in there, in your heart? And does it cloud your judgment? Does it cloud my judgment? I don't think so. I think we've, I think our campaign to defend our homes was particularly successful because it was honest to what was happening on the ground, because it refused to follow the strategy that we have used in our advocacy before where we shrink ourselves and we turn the other cheek and we try to convince American lawmakers and American diplomats and journalists of our humanity um, because we wait for their approval. You know, I was 14 years old when I first uh, flew to Congress to speak to Congress people and to speak to at the European Parliament. And I, at the time I thought, wow, I must be such a brilliant 14-year-old um, for them to have me here. And, you know, looking back, I didn't know what I was talking about. I had horrendously broken English um, and I didn't have any any talking points. And I came to realize that the, the reason why we send our kids with their PowerPoints to the hill is because of the racism and the hatred that lingers inside the hearts of American politicians who refuse to sit on the table um, with Palestinian adults as equals. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, res we resort to sending our kids who will not threaten um, and who will not, you know, trigger the biases they have against Muslims and Arab people, which Palestinians, even though we're not all Muslim, are racialized as Muslim. Um, and this is why we emphasize uh, the deaths of women and children as though the deaths of our men does not count or does not matter. All of these things, I think the new generation of Palestinians is rebelling against. Um, I think words like, you know, I think it's loaded. Uh, it's loaded language, uh, anger and angry and hate and so on and so forth, because it mis mischaracterizes people and it kind of delegitimizes them a little bit. Um, you know, I think the real, the real anger is the bulldozer um, bulldozing through my house. I think the real anger is the 18-year-old soldier who refuses to see me as a human being and strip searches me every chance they get. That's where the real anger lies. Um, and I'm quite honestly proud of, you know, our unabashedness um, and our refusal to like bow our heads or bury our heads in the sand. I think that's the only way forward. So anger or whatever it is, is a fuel for action. Absolutely. And it has been throughout throughout history. It has been. Well, if we look a little bit more short term, 
People speak about a one-state solution and a two-state solution. What is your hope here for um, for this part of the world? Do you, do you see a possible future with a two-state solution, whether it's Palestine and Israel? Do you, do you see a one-state solution where there's a, a diversity of different peoples, like in the United States, and they have equal rights in the courts and everywhere else? You know, I don't think there's a geography in which a two-state solution is is possible. Yeah. Um, as we said earlier, Swiss, Swiss cheese, there's literally uh, settlements all over the West Bank. Um, and I don't think it's fair. Um, a two-state solution is fair to all of the people whose homes um, are still in Haifa, um, in Nazareth, in Yaffa, and so far. And I don't think it's fair that, like, I'm going to have to travel to another country to visit my cousin who's married in Nazareth, for example. Um, and beyond that, it's just not possible. I do believe that what, whatever you want to call it, one state, two state, 48 states, 29 states, whatever you want to call it, refugees need to return, land needs to be given back, wealth needs to be redistributed, um, and a recognition of the Nakba needs to happen. That is the only way we could move forward. Um, and, you know, regarding uh, whether this is like a possible situation for two people to live side by side, let's ask two questions. Uh, let's say you, you lived in a house with a person, your roommate, you just had a roommate who constantly beat the shit out of you. I wonder if you'd want to continue to live with them. That's one. And let's try another scenario. Let's say you live in a house with a roommate who you just absolutely hate, just absolutely oppose their existence as a people. Um, you don't even give him, you know, a key to your to your apartment. Let's say now you're like equal partners in the apartment. Would you want to give? Would you want to live with him? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Time will tell. But you know, I don't think I don't think they want to live with us. Israelis are quite good, you know, especially Israeli diplomats, they're quite good at um, using uh, flowery language about peace and coexistence and so on and so forth. And they're good about, they're good with making us seem insane or radical or like uh, full of hate and so on and so forth. But the, but the, but the policies speak from the, from, for themselves, the, the actions on the ground speak for themselves. And I, I truly, I mean, every time there's an uptick, many of them leave, and I wonder, I would like to see, I wonder what would happen in a one-state solution. Well, okay, so you've spoken eloquently about the injustice of the evictions, the demolitions, the settlements, uh, but is there, uh, can you comment about the difficulty of the security from an Israel perspective when there is a large number of people that want to destroy it? How does Israel exist peacefully? This one-state solution. I don't know by not shooting, uh, you know, a journalist doing her job in the Zanin refugee camp. But that by doesn't... not killing a fourteen-year-old standing in his front yard. This whole talk about you know security and security fence and the whole like propaganda of the Israeli defense forces and this whole iron wall ideology in which somehow they are always defending themselves, even though they're. You know, Netanyahu and the Israeli government continue to talk about an existential threat, mm -hmm. 
about Iran being an existential threat. Even though the Israeli government is the only body that holds nuclear weapons in the region. They're the most sophisticated army in the region. And yet they continue hiding behind their fingers and talking about an existential threat and talking about how like they're insecure and, and so on and so forth. I came here on the bus, you know, I, I, I live in a, I live in a, in a house where everybody in the world can easily Google it and get its address and anybody can just walk into my house. And this is just, and I'm lucky and privileged as a Palestinian journalist. There are many Palestinian journalists who lose their lives. This is like, that's real insecurity, but we don't even have time to whine about it because there's real shit going on on the ground that we're preoccupied with and reporting on all the time that we don't even have the time to talk about how limited is our institutional backing, how limited is our, you know, uh, cyber uh, security, how limited is our, you know, even healthcare, you know, like all of these things, we don't even have time to complain about. But they're the real life things that formulate an insecure population um, that, Israelis, that Israel certainly um, does not suffer from.
العين وبينك فكرة وهديت تمثالي وإن كنت معاند بالفطرة قديس بخيالي بيني وبينك هذيان وإنت الكاس وأنا المخمور وبغني لروحك علشان الروح الخمرة بيني وبينك هذيان وإنت الكاس وأنا المخمور وبغني لروحك علشان الروح الخمرة بيني وبينك هذيان وإنت الكاس وأنا وبغني لروحك علشان الروح الخمرة والنور بيني وبينك هذيان وانت الكاس وانا المخمور وبغني لروحك علشان الروح الخمرة والنور ان كنت معاند بالفطرة قديس بخيالي وضع الحالي كويس صدين بنحب اللطين بنحب العوائق الشقاوي السلقان الغلط الساوي من زوات الغنى والصار والسطر على البحر والسكر ما بيخلصش احنا بنعرفش الوقت ما تعرف عيني بنا ما تنسى 
What gives me hope about the future of Palestine is taking a look at history and understanding that across history there has not been an injustice that lingered um, endlessly. You know, everything comes to an end. It's not necessarily, there's not necessarily like a, a perfect resolution for everything, but nothing, nothing um, continues in its and it's in the form that it started in, in the occupation and colonialism in Palestine and Zionism. All of these things are not at all sustainable whatsoever. Um, so taking a look at history, you know, a lot of a lot of what I'm saying um, today and what I have said in your podcast, many people would have would be you know pearl clutching hearing me say what I say. But I always try to remind myself that during Jim Crow, during slavery, during the Holocaust, um, during the occupation of Algeria. Um, during any point of colonialism in the African continent, um, people did not possess the moral clarity they possess today when they talk about these things. And all of these things were contested and controversial and in many, many, many cases legal. And today they are deplorable, condemnable, and people say never again and they don't remember them. So that's what gives me hope, is believing in the, you know, in believing in the, inevitability of justice. What do you love most about Palestine? What are like maybe little things that you remember from your childhood, from your life there in East Jerusalem and elsewhere that you just brings a smile to your face? I think just the unabashedness uh, of Palestinians. Um, we're, we're people who are told and were at some point were told by the large majority of the world that we should shrink ourselves, that we should be ashamed of who we are, that we are monsters, that we are terrorists, that we are blah, blah, blah. And Palestinian people don't really give a, give a shit. You know, they're continuing to live as they do. They continue to resist. They continue to write. They continue to to do to do all that they do. And I, and, I, and I love that the most. And I love our ability to laugh more than anything else. Uh, one thing is that's under, misunderstood in, Amer in American culture about Palestinian culture or just Western culture in general is like martyrdom culture. A lot of the time people um, will, will, you know, broadcast images of Palestinian women cheering when their sons have been killed by um, the Israeli forces. And they will say, you know, these people glorify death and these people are eager to like have sex with 70 virgins in heaven and so on and so forth. But that's not the case. The whole idea of the occupation, when they are killing our children, the whole idea is that they are trying to break our spirits. So these mothers whose hearts are broken, who are anguished, who are, you know, so, so in so much pain, when they are cheering, they are not. They are not celebrating. They are not cheering. They are. They are letting the occupier know that you have not broken my spirit. I have not yet been defeated. And I think that is beautiful. It's the same thing with our prison culture. You know, Palestinians are fascinating in the sense that Palestinians go to prison and they 
study and they come out with degrees they can part they can find ways to participate in civil society um they can even smuggle you know sperm from prison to give a life outside of it mm -hmm. um because they understand in their philosophy of prisons they understand that these structures these buildings were built to break your spirits so what do you do you allow it you don't allow it to break your spirits you resist it. You you continue to to hold on to life. You continue to hold on to your love of life. You continue to hold on to your love of freedom, and you come out of prison and you're celebrated by your community. And the prison has not broken your spirit. So all of these structures and system that is that the Zionist movement has put into place, be it the shoot to kill policies or the prisons or the demolishing our homes that were meant to kill our spirits, they don't. You you demolish a home in in Jerusalem and the people say don't worry we'll we'll build another and you demolish it and we'll build another. That's what I admire most about the Palestinian people. It's this resilience, and you know people love to say resilience, but I think it's stubbornness. I think we're such a stubborn people, and I think that's that's great. على ديني على أرض تلاقيني أنا لهلي أنا فديهم أنا دم فلسطيني 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 أنا دم فلسطيني